Well, one of our family movie night go-tos lately has been Disneyland's uh, Robin Hood. Uh, I'll be totally honest, this is probably more my pick than my children's pick. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's, uh, I, I, th- it, I think it's something to do with the bow and arrow. I just have this nerdy thing that just like, I like Katniss for some reason, Legolas, all these bow and arrow people, I just really like them. So the fox and Robin Hood, just, I, I like it. And, and also though, I think there's something to do with the, the story. This, this story of, well, okay, I don't think I'm giving any spoilers away, right? It's like been out for 50 years and there's like 11 Robin Hoods out there. The story's all the same, right? There's, there's evil King John, the, the lion, and, and he's oppressing the, the citizens of, of Nottingham, these, these creatures. They're, they're unable to, to make ends meet. He, he's robbing them of their, of their finances and, and of their life, really. And so what we need is we need a hero to come in. We, we need Robin Hood to, to come in and defeat evil King John so that good King Richard can come back on the throne and that there would be once again justice in Nottingham. That idea, though, that, that Robin Hood story goes beyond those 11 movies. It's something that's deeply ingrained in our culture and in our hearts. We want to look out for the little guy. We, we want to ensure that the downtrodden and downcast have a way of, of getting back up again. We want to see justice. We want to see justice be brought and that those who would, would work out injustice would be punished. So we find it in other movies. We find that storyline played out in political platforms. We find it all over social media and cancel culture. And we also find it in the Bible. That story of God bringing about justice in the world is a biblical story. And we see it in Psalm 82 as well. So I want to look at three points this morning. The power behind injustice, the accusation of injustice, and the judgment on injustice. So first, the power of injustice. Now here's the thing. If you heard my introduction there and you're like, oh, I know what we're talking about. We're talking about injustice. Honestly, you'd be kind of like half right and half wrong. Here's the thing. We're also actually talking about demons this morning. I know. Trust me. I, f- I feel that. Um, I just, I, I, I've never really heard a sermon on, on injustice and demons, like together. I just, I, I don't know of one. Uh, it's kind of a, a foreign thought to me. I don't really have a way of introducing that those two concepts all in one, but, but that's, that's what we find here. And, and so let me, let me, let me show you. L- listen, listen to verses one and two again. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So, so here's what's going on. God enters the courtroom. All rise, because God here is presiding, and surrounding him 
is this language of gods. And I'm going to show you in a second. Those gods are evil spiritual beings. They're, they're fallen angels. They're demons. Now, you might ask, could, could these gods not be just a metaphor for other human judges and, and leaders? Well, here's the thing. I, I, don't, I don't think that's possible. Here's why. If you look at verse 6 in our passage, it, it says, I said you are gods, so there's that same word, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, verse 7, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. If God here was speaking to other human judges, it, it seems unnecessary and superfluous to say, oh yeah, by the way, though, you're going to die like men. Well, of course you're going to die like the rest of humanity. You, you are human, but that would be a big deal if God is talking to some greater angelic spiritual being. Secondly, if you go later on in the book of Psalms, Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7, we hear this same language of these sons of God, and there God says they live or exist in the skies. Last time I checked, humans don't float around in the sky. And lastly, in the Bible, we hear of this language of a divine counsel. Actually, in the book of Job, we find out that um, God is again holding kind of court. This, this council of these angelic beings come to him, one of whom is Satan. So, so, so this language of God is, is speaking about spiritual beings. Now, these, we hear gods, and we just, I think, automatically assume, well, that, that must mean that they kind of have these certain characteristics. They're all powerful, they're, they're all knowing, they're all, all present, but the reality is the, there are lesser gods who do not exist those same, or have those same characteristics or qualities. These gods in Psalm 82 are not equal with Yahweh the God of Israel and the God of the Bible. These lesser gods are created beings. They, they derive their authority from God. God decides how much power they're allowed to exercise in the world. And these gods are supposed to carry out Yahweh's will. But now they've failed. They've abused their power. They've gone their own way and they've served their own selfish desires. And so God says, now is my time to judge you. If you want to have a better understanding of what's going on here, you have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 is a chapter in our Bibles that really influences the way uh, the Jews would understand the world in which they existed. And, and so we read this in verse 7 to 9. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his lauded heritage. So what happens? 
God creates the world. He creates it good. Adam and Eve rebel. And so God expels them from his presence. World gets worse. God decides to then start over. He's going he's to start over with, with one family, with Noah and his family. And he, he sends a flood to wipe out the rest of mankind. Turns out that also really didn't help the human condition. Because right after Noah gets off the boat, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. Basically, God tells Noah and his families, and now there are many generations, ghosts spread out across the world, and the nations or these people at the time, they're like, yeah, nah. No, no thanks, God. We, we actually kind of like it right here, because if we're going to go out across the world, that's kind of dangerous, and we'd have to trust you, and it just, it's just way easier kind of to stick together here and do our own thing. You know what, God, we don't, we don't really even need you anyways, we're kind of moved on. Uh, we'll just take care of ourselves and, and we're going to really actually build a name for ourselves. We're going to build this super impressive tower and everyone's going to look at us and flock to us and, and think we're all that. Well, it wasn't all that because we find out that God actually has to come down. It's as though he's, he's squinting, trying to make, make out this little speck that is this ginormous tower in their mind. And God goes, okay. Here we go again. And so he says, we, we read here in verse uh, 8 of Deuteronomy 32, he, he gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. So he literally splits up that one unified people into the many nations of this world. He gives them different languages at that time. And it says, if we go on, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. So God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to split you up and ruling over you is going to be one of these lesser gods. Each of these nations is going to have one of these, these lesser gods exercising their power over you. But, but God says, Yahweh says, but, but I'm going to keep one nation. There's one people I'm keeping for myself. Verse 9 says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his, his lauded heritage. I'm keeping Israel. I'm going to be the God of Israel. And so, so let's find out who this works out better for. The, the nations who have these lesser deities ruling over me or Israel whom I rule over. And so we're back at Psalm 82 now. And, and God, see, even though he, he splits up these nations and gives them lesser deities to rule over them, doesn't mean he doesn't care about those nations. And so he's coming to these lesser gods and he's going, what are you doing? You're not ruling the way you're supposed to be ruling. You're supposed to be ruling with justice, but instead you're letting the, the oppressor get away with his wrong. I still expect you to rule on my behalf, and so you're not, and so now's my time to judge you. Now, here are the objections I hear. Seriously, Daniel? Gods? <laughs> Demons? Angelic beings? Right, we're in the West. We, we, don't, we don't really believe that. That's not really part of our day-to-day our -day life. But consider the fact that for many other parts of the world, that's second nature to them. 
in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, it was natural to believe in a multiplicity of gods or demons or spiritual beings. And so who's to say that our culture here in the West is the only right culture, as though we've cornered the world in wisdom and understanding? Maybe, maybe they're the ones who have got it right. Not to mention, eight out of 10 Canadians say they believe in some sort of spiritual reality anyways. But also consider this. Consider that naturalism and scientism, the belief that what you can observe is the only really thing that you can explain, the only thing that exists. Consider that naturalism and scientism fail to actually account for the depth of the problem of evil. See, we like to limit problems to things we can fix. So what we say is, these are really the two issues at hand. We either got a psychological issue or we got a sociological issue. Either, either the issue is the way they were raised and brought up or the issues with society and these systems we've, we've put in place. And so, so if we could just fix those two things, then, then really we'd, we'd fix the problem in the world, right? We just thought if only we could educate people better, then we would be able to get rid of racism and violence. Except it turns out that the Holocaust, death camps, genocide, all came from one of the most advanced and well-educated society in the entire world at that time. There's a professor, a secular professor, he admits to being a secular professor at Columbia. His name is Andrew Del Banco. And he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. This is his opening line in the book. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. See, this is what he's trying to say. It's getting harder and harder to explain why people do bad things in the world. See, we, we might struggle with the reality of supernatural beings existing in the world, but I would argue it's harder to actually explain war, racism, genocide, child trafficking, Sex trafficking, slavery, as though all of that is the result of psychological and sociological issues. See, the Bible, though, doesn't struggle with explaining that evil in the world. The, the Bible says there is an evil in our heart, but then these gods come and they, they aggravate that evil. They, they, they stoke that flame and, and evil in our heart so that our evil actually increases out in the world. Here, here's why I'm trying to work so hard to, to show you that there are demonic powers or gods behind the injustice in the world. It's because when you realize that there's powerful supernatural beings influencing the injustice around us, then you actually know where you have to look to for help then you know that it's only to God that we can look for help. Secondly, the accusation of injustice. 
So God is going to hold responsible these lesser gods for two things, what they are doing and what they are not doing. Look at, look at verse 2 again. For behold, your enemies, that's the different chapter, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? See, these gods are empowering and backing the wicked in their evil schemes. These demons are making sure that the human judges and human courts rule in favor of the oppressor, of the one who is committing injustice and evil in the world. There's these powerful and evil human individuals. They're, They're exploiting the weak, the marginalized, the defenseless, and these gods are making sure that they can get away with it. That they're letting these heinous individuals stand on the backs of those who are downcast and downtrodden. And so here comes Yahweh and says, judge the wickedness. Do something about it. Don't let them get away with this. But he also holds them accountable for the things they've neglected to do. So we read this in verses 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. See, God's saying, do something about it. You you go help them then. You care for the weak. You, You rescue the downtrodden, the afflicted, the destitute. It's it's not okay that they're hurting. You have the power to help. See, the Bible talks about justice as going beyond the courtroom. There's two dimensions to justice in the Bible. It's equity, it's fairness, it's making sure that the wrongdoer is held accountable, but it's also advocacy. It's speaking up with, for the person who doesn't have a voice. True justice is saying, that's wrong. And also, okay, now let me help you do something about it. It's justice and mercy. A few years ago, I had a very close friend who was taken advantage of. A boss had come to him and asked him to borrow a very large sum of money and promised to repay him. Turned out the boss swindled him, lied to him, and took off with his money. So my good friend decides to seek legal advice. Basically, they, they start climbing up kind of the, the, the judicial systems in, here in Canada, and eventually they, they come to him and say, Okay, the last step is to go to the Supreme Court. But here's the problem. We can go to the Supreme Court and they can declare, they can judge this boss of yours and declare him to be guilty. They can judge him for wrongdoing, but they can't actually promise you you'll get your money back. See, if if your boss doesn't have the money anymore, they can't help you. Just hear that, okay? The highest court system here in Canada struggles to implement both sides of justice, 
of, of justice, of punishing wrongdoing and mercy, helping the one who was wronged. And yet that's what God calls us to do. I think if we're honest, we struggle with both sides of that. We, we, we th- I think it's, I think it generally, we find it a lot easier to, to call out wrongdoing, right? We, we jump in, jump on our social media platforms. We, we fire out a, a tweet. We kind of lob in these, these grenades on our social media accounts. And we're like, hey, this person is committing injustice. Look at all the wrong that they're doing. Don't, don't, don't frequent their stores anymore. You should punish them for what they're doing. But I think, I think in generally speaking, we, we find that to be a lot easier than actually implementing mercy of coming alongside those people who have been taken advantage of. Because that's, that requires sacrifice. That actually requires us to give up of our own time and energy and maybe even our resources. But that's what God wants of us. Think about this. Why would these demons, these lesser gods, care about injustice? Why would these lesser gods help those who are already at the top of society? Like, like, like my initial thought is, if these demons are really bad, then they would just try to mess up everyone. Why help those who are already at the top? Well, you see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the gods identified with people at the top. Those are the people the gods identified with. They were the gods of kings, of governors, of rulers, of of military leaders, of of wealthy. See, it's the wealthy and powerful people who could purchase shrines and idols. It's the wealthy who could display the power of their gods. People are looking around at all these individuals at the top of their society, and they're going, oh, tell me about your god. Who's your god that, that helps you get all that good stuff in life? See, when a god here is helping the oppressor rise further up in prominence, what they're doing is advertising. That's their self-marketing scheme. And so who who cares about those people on the bottom, the gods would say? We, We don't associate with them. We don't identify with them. People don't link us together. But there's one God who did care about those people. It's Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God of the Bible was the God who cared about those people at the bottom. There's there's this strange shift in our passage here in verse 5. It it moves to the third-person voice. It says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. He's talking about those who have been taken advantage of. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Yahweh's saying they don't see. 
These people that you've taken advantage of and oppressed, they don't see, they're, they're blind. They, they, they fail to understand the way I've made the earth. They, they fail to understand the foundations of the earth. And thus they fail to understand the one who founded it. They fail to understand who I am, says Yahweh. I'm the God of the orphan and the widow, Psalm 68, verse 5. I'm the God who sides with the immigrant and the refugee, Zechariah 7.10. I'm the God of the poor and the hungry and the homeless, Isaiah 58, verse 7. That's what I care about, says Yahweh. Those are my people. Those are the people I side with. The reason God calls us to care for the marginalized and afflicted in society is because one, he cares about those people. And secondly, it's so that those people would come to understand who he is. So let me summarize where we've been. There's this God the God at the top, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he, he appoints for these gods to rule over these other nations. These gods fail in their mandate. They bring about injustice amongst these other nations. That They stand behind the evil of the human rulers. And so God is going to hold them accountable, both for letting evil go unpunished and also for not then doing something themselves for those who are hurting. And now, by implication, God is calling us to be a part of that justice and mercy in the world. The problem is still is this. How, though? If there really are these gods, these powerful beings who are standing behind the impression and injustice in the world, how can we actually do something about that? So we come to our last point. The judgment on injustice. He judges injustice. He sentences them for this wrongdoing. Verse 6 to 8 says this, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Yahweh says to these other gods, this is your punishment, you die. Now, they don't die like ordinary humans in the sense that their, their brain stops functioning or their heart stops being. They're, they're spiritual disembodied beings. They don't have brains or hearts. But he says you die in the sense that you experience the same fate as any other human who chose to rebel against me. Matthew 25 verse 41 puts it this way. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He sentences them to hell, to eternal punishment and destruction. The Bible calls this the second death. So he comes, he sentences them to hell, and he then says, okay, now I will begin to rule. I'm going to fill that void. I will be their God. So verse 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. I'll stand over top of them. I'll care for the lowly and downtrodden. I'll ensure justice and mercy is carried out in this world. 
But when? How? How will God do this? Well, in John chapter 10, we, we witness a very interesting uh, scene. Jesus has just come and declared himself to be the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says. I, I take care of my sheep. I, I lead them to green pastures. I give them life and make sure they have abundant life. And then these Pharisees come and they begin to question him. So we read this. Jesus says, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, so the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Is it not written in your spiritual book? Is it not written in Psalms? I said you are gods. There's our verse. I said you are gods. If then he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So they come to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, we're going to stone you. Jesus is like, why? Is I've only been doing good things. I just told you I'm going to take care of the, the little sheep, the, the people in this world who are hurting and need a shepherd. And they're like, no, 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 it's not because of that. It's because you said you're God. And Jesus goes, hold on, hold on. Look at your Bible. There's a passage in Psalm 82 where God says there are other gods. There are these sons of God. So why are you getting upset just because I call myself one of these gods? But, but let's be clear, Jesus said. In, in case you want to know which of these gods I am, I'm not one of those gods that ruled over the nations. I'm Yahweh. I'm the God of Israel. See, Jesus is saying, I will come and help I will come and ensure justice is carried out in this world. I will be the one who will rule over the nations. I will show you who God really is. Look at my works. See, here's what's amazing. Jesus didn't just care about the poor. He actually identified with the poor. He was born in a feeding trough. He's born to peasant parents. He lived homeless for most of his life. He probably lost his dad at an early age. Before his crucifixion, he was stripped of his one last possession, his robe. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus identified with the poor. He identified with the oppressed. Jesus, Jesus was the only one who did nothing wrong. And yet he suffered the worst penalty reserved for the worst of criminals. Death on a cross. But it's that death 
that death and resurrection that not only allowed Jesus to identify with the poor and oppressed, it's actually what guarantees the vindication of the poor and oppressed. It's, it's his resurrection and his death that says, if you trust in me, I will bring you to heaven with me one day and all wrongs will be made right. It's his death and resurrection that provides an opportunity for those of us who have been unjust to be forgiven. We who have looked past the oppression and injustice, we who've walked by and turned a stray eye and just ignored the hurts around us. Jesus says, I'm coming to die so that you could be forgiven. It's his death and resurrection that allows Jesus to condemn and judge and eventually strip the gods of their power to rule unjustly. Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15 says this, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's language for demons and gods. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God takes over ruling the nations and he gives us his Holy Spirit so we now can carry out justice and mercy in the world. If you're going to take away one thing this morning, let it be this. I know it's been crazy sermon. <laughs> take away this. God defeats the gods so that we might be freed and empowered to show justice and mercy in this world. Let me say that again. God defeats the gods so that we might be freed and empowered to show justice and mercy in this world. 